Well, hey, we are launching a brand new series that we're going to be in for the next uh, probably about six or seven months, and that's going to be looking at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. So super excited about that. So we're going to look at the text for today first and then pray. We'll do a quick introduction to the book of Genesis this morning, then we'll spend most of our time looking at the first um, three Hebrew words of the Bible. It should be pretty fun. Genesis chapter 1. In verse 1. By the way, quick announcement. Uh, we're starting a new uh, Bible study group on Tuesday nights here at the church at 6.30 p.m. And the format for that, we're going to be taking a look at some of the parables uh, in the New Testament. So short teaching, we'll have a little bit of discussion time. And then afterwards, we're going to hang out, play games, um, like board games, stuff like that. So for those of you that are nerds like me and you want to play Settlers of Catan or Monopoly or whatever, um, and I like the games that have to do with world domination. Those tend to be the best. Um, so anyway, 6.30, there will be childcare for that. So no excuse not to come out. I really hope to see you guys there. That's this Tuesday night, 6.30. I don't have a fancy, trendy name for it. It's just the thing. It's the thing we're going to do on Tuesday night. You can call it that, the Tuesday night thing, okay? That's why I didn't go into the branding as a career. All right, Genesis 1, here we go. In the beginning, God created. That's all we're going to look at for this morning. In the beginning... God created. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you were intrinsically involved in every detail of the bringing together of scripture. We thank you this morning that we can sit with confidence, knowing that, God, you speak with authority, with power, with majesty, God, that, that you are the one that knows all truth because you are truth. You are the source of truth. You are the truth. You are the creator and the sustainer of the cosmos, of the heavens, of the earth. You're the creator and sustainer of every single one of us in here. We were made for your glory and for your glory alone. And God, as we open up the book of beginnings, as we begin to, to, to search your scriptures from the very first words, we pray that you would speak, God. That you would have something to say directly to us. That you, the cosmic, eternal, omniscient, omnipotent, star-breathing God would have a word for us. Both individually and corporately, God. Lord, we love you this morning. We look to you because you are the way and the truth and the life. Would you teach us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, understanding where you came from as a human... It really matters. It really matters. It's something intrinsically built into you as a human being that you want to know where you came from. They've done studies, uh, as my wife and I have done some, some work as CASAs in the child welfare DHS kind of uh, um, world, world there. They've done studies that kids who are removed from their parents, even if they're adopted into a really great home, even if they're adopted into an ideal home, oftentimes will still do better, not always, but oftentimes will still do better in their original home, even if it's not an ideal setting, simply because it matters that we know where we came from. It matters that we have a connection to our origin, to, to where we came from. I remember my best friend growing up when I was a kid, he didn't have, um, he didn't have any relationship or contact with his father. He had a stepdad and 
He knew his mom, but he didn't know his, his father. And I just remember multiple times him being so curious about his own behavior, wondering how much of that behavior came back to something about maybe his father that he didn't know. He's like, I wonder if my dad did this. I wonder if my dad was good at that. And I just remember him, him sort of always having this unsettledness and always having this deep intrinsic desire to know his father. My point is simply that it, it matters that you understand where you came from. It matters that you understand where you came from. You know, uh, there's something I've noticed, a pattern in every sequel. Every time a movie comes out with a sequel, you know, they always do. They start by going back and introducing you to something about the character, the lead character that, they, that you didn't know about before. Have you ever noticed that? Like, think about Lord of the Rings, like the third Lord of the Rings movie. It starts with showing where Gollum started and where it came from and when the ring fell into the water. And, and as you're the, the watcher, as you're the person watching the movie, you're going, oh, makes more sense. It develops the storyline. As humans, we have a desire to know our background. Now, on a macro level, on a macro level, this identity, purpose, and lineage dysphoria that we have in this particular moment of time has created a massive vacuum of purpose in the world. Have you noticed? You see riots happening in the streets. You see young people um, pushing all of their passion into something that's probably the wrong passion, and you're asking yourself why. And the question is because there's a vacuum, a space of purpose in our culture right now, is there not? There's a vacuum. There's, there's, there's a massive void in particularly young people that don't feel like they have anything to live for, so they live for something else. This is why radical Islam is, is, is so effective at radicalizing young people that feel like it just got really dark. Um, that was creepy, it was right when I said Islam. Um, they're, they're good at radicalizing these young individuals, these young men in particular that have no purpose. They're not getting out of bed for anything that day other than to maybe play video games um, for, for that day or whatever it is. And why is this? I believe the answer to this void is the unintended consequence of secularism. It's the unintended consequence of secularism. Uh, R.C. Sproul defines secularism as living within the bounds of this age. It means that you base and orient everything that you do not off of eternity, not off of your past, not off of your lineage, not off of your future, but off of now. What do I want now? What feels good now? What is going to make me happy now? What feels right now? That's what secularism gives. It gives an overwhelming obsession with now. R.C. Sproul goes on to say this. He says, man in the 20th century has been busily engaged in a quest for dignity. It is a very earnest quest. The civil rights movement developed the cry, we are human beings, we are creatures of dignity, we want to be treated as beings of dignity. So also have others. But the existentialist, that means the person that says, I'm the master of my own universe, okay, uh, tells us that our roots are in, non, in nothingness, that our future is in nothingness. Think, man, if your origins are in nothing and your destiny is in nothing, how can you possibly have any dignity now? If your past history tells us that we have emerged from the slime, that we are only grown-up germs, what difference can it possibly make whether we are black germs or white germs, whether we are free germs or enslaved germs? Who cares? We can sing of the dignity of man, but unless that dignity is rooted substantially in that which is intrinsic, has intrinsic value, pardon the typo, all our songs of human rights and dignity are so much whistling in the dark. 
They are naive, simplistic, credulous. And the existentialist understands that he says, you're playing games when you call yourselves creatures of dignity. If all you have is the present, there is no dignity, only nothingness. Do you understand what he's getting at here? The unintended consequence of secularism, which tried to remove God from the world, is that now we're living only for the now. But if you're living only for the now, you have no real reason to claim that you deserve dignity as a human being because you're just a grown-up germ. You're just an accident. You're a cosmic accident. Where does your intrinsic value come? That's his point. Now, what if I told you that there is more meaning and more answers in the first three Hebrew words of the Bible that you hold in your lap than all of the world's philosophies and science books combined? It's a pretty controversial statement, right? What if I told you, literally, the first three Hebrew words of the Bible are more profound, will do more to give you the sense of worth and dignity and direction and clarity and identity that you've been seeking in your life more than every single philosophy and science book in the world. Unabashedly, I, I, I claim this, okay? The first three Hebrew words of the Bible, and that's what we're gonna look at this morning. But first, I wanna give you guys an introduction to the book of Genesis, okay? Uh, because we're gonna be in it for the next six months, and I just wanna give you an overview. It's 50 chapters. We're not gonna cover all 50. We're just gonna look at the first 11. Um, we may keep going. We'll see how things go, okay? But Genesis is a protology. Protology means it's the study of the beginnings. It's the book of beginnings. In fact, that's what Genesis means. Did you know that? Genesis uh, is literally the Greek word from, for beginnings, translating the Hebrew word in the beginning, which is bereshit. Okay? It is the book of beginnings. It's where it all begins. It's where it all starts. It is the Genesis, this book of Genesis, is the Genesis of time and space and matter. It is the genesis of humanity. It's the genesis we see of marriage and human sexuality. It's the genesis of children and family and work and evil within creation. It's the genesis of sin, the genesis of murder, the genesis of redemption, the genesis of promise, and the genesis of faith. All of these beginnings consist within these 50 chapters of the book of Genesis. It is the book of beginnings. It outlines really nicely, actually, into two primary chunks. The first chunk is chapter one through 11, which we're going to be studying for the next six months. And that can be called, if you're taking notes, primeval history, primeval history or prehistoric history. That's Genesis one through 11. Chapters 12 through 50 can be called patriarchal history. That's all of the history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, and his sons leading to Joseph. Okay, that's the second half of the book of Genesis. So it outlines very nicely. It was written by Moses, okay, and the Bible affirms that fairly clearly that the book of Genesis was written by Moses. By the way, Genesis belongs to a larger group of books called the Pentateuch, penta meaning five, uh, or as the Jews would call it, the Torah, the law. So Genesis was the first book of Moses. It's always been believed to be the book of Moses. Um, and so that means it was written probably around 1500 B.C., Okay, 1,500 years before Christ. Genesis has many themes, themes in which we're gonna get into and look at. I don't have time to mention them all, but let me give you four really quickly. Four primary themes of the book of Genesis. Number one is Genesis is a book about God's grace. It's a book about God's grace. It simultaneously paints an R-rated picture of the sinfulness of humanity 
while also simultaneously painting an amazing picture of God's willingness to forgive, redeem, restore, and show grace. Right from the beginning of the book, in chapter three, we see Adam and Eve sin. What does God immediately do? He covers them. He gives them hope. He immediately shows grace. And then we see the first murder. We see Cain kill his brother, evil, evil. <laughs> Abel, it sounded right. Cain killed his brother, Abel. And what happens immediately after? God protects Cain. He protects a murderer. He shows grace to a murderer. Humanity becomes beyond debased in the days of Noah. And what does God do? He shows grace. He restores. He redeems humanity by taking Noah and Noah's sons and, and cleansing the earth. Abraham, we don't often think about this, but he was a numbskull, okay? He told uh, Pharaoh that his wife was his sister, okay? Bad move. Don't ever do that. Terrible idea, okay? Just write that down. Don't ever tell someone that my wife's my sister, okay? Um, he blows it, but what does God do? He graciously preserves and leads Abraham. Isaac, like father, like son, does the same thing, okay? Graciously, God preserves Isaac. Jacob blows it multiple times. Jacob was, he, he was pretty crooked. He was mischievous. I mean, he, he, he stole his brother's birthright. Jacob had all kinds of issues, all kinds of pro problems, but what does God do? He preserves and loves and graciously leads Jacob. My point is simply this, that Genesis is a book about grace. Kent Hughes says, Genesis is about grace. It is far from being a faded page fallen from antiquity. It breathes the grace of God, okay? Secondly, Genesis is a book about God's imminence and transcendence. So those are big words that basically mean God stands apart and away from his creation, and he also stands within it. We see that in the book of Genesis. Listen to this quote by, it keeps going away from me, Sailhammer. The narratives of the book turn from major catastrophes, such as the flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, to seemingly incidental encounters between individuals. It is a part of this book's central purpose to show that these two spheres belong together in God's eyes. The God of the universe, the creator, cares about and is concerned with the personal lives of every individual in his world. His point here is that in Genesis we see a cosmic God breathing stars, causing global floods, also caring about the fact that Jacob, or uh, yeah, Jacob is sleeping on a rock, or caring about the fact that, that Abraham is struggling. I mean, we, we see the, the details of human lives. We also see the cosmic universal realities. And we see both. And that, the point in that is that God cares about both. Did you know that? He, he cares about what's going on in the, the cosmos, and he's attentive to that. He knows every black hole and every galaxy. He understands it all. He has power over it all. He speaks it all in existence. He also cares about the fact that you have a headache today. And he's intricately involved in both at the same time. What an amazing God. Genesis is a book about faith and God's faithfulness. And lastly, it's a book about God. It's a book about God. Yes, it is the origin of humanity. Yes, it is the beginning of the cosmos. But ultimately, hear me on this. Genesis is a book about God. It's about God. And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time this morning. The Bible begins and ends with God. It is the story about God. Anyone who ever tells you that your Bible is a book about you is wrong. You might be in here. This may have implications for you, but this is about God. It's about him. It's his story. If you ever want to remember that, history is his story, not your story. His story. 
So let's get into it. Genesis chapter one, verse one. Like I said, we're just gonna look at the first three Hebrew words of the Bible, and I wanna just nerd out on you for just a moment and explain what these three words are. Now, I know you're saying, in the beginning, God created, that's five words. It's actually only three words in Hebrew, okay? Um, And here's why. In the beginning is actually one Hebrew word, and it's Bereshit, okay? Bereshit, can you guys say that? That was okay. Um, In the beginning, God, Elohim, you gotta go, Elohim, because that's how they do it. Elohim, okay. <laughs> Can you guys say it, Elohim? I heard, the, I heard some there, good job. <laughs> some, some Israeli person's watching this like, oh, this white guy is such an idiot. Okay, uh, created is the Hebrew word bara. So if you put it all together, in the beginning, God created is Bereshith Elohim bara, okay? Three of the most controversial, life-giving, de- definitive words, I think, in the entire Bible, and we're going to spend the rest of our time discussing them. These three words, in the beginning, God created, are a litmus test for whether or not you will and can read the rest of the Bible in such a way that will have any impact on your life. If, if you can't read these words and go, yes, and amen, the rest of the Bible will become nothing but something to um, maybe give you some positive feelings. These three words are a litmus test. They are a front door, a gate, both for the people in our day and the people of the day that read it originally that would define or weed out whether or not you would agree with the rest of the Bible. These are big words. They have massive implications. You know, most authors, if they're writing a book that's controversial, they're trying to make a position that's controversial, they save the really controversial stuff till the, 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 maybe the third, fourth of the book. And they say a lot of things you agree with so that you keep reading. Not in God's book. He punches right out of the gate with one of the most controversial realities that you could ever imagine. He comes right out of the gate with three words that force the reader to ask himself, do I believe this or not? You can't get past it. In order to see just how important and how controversial these three words are, we need to ask two questions. Number one, what did these words mean to the original audience? And secondly, what do these words mean to our current audience? Because they offend both, but they offend both for very different reasons. Are you with me? Okay, like I said, Moses wrote this book probably about 1500 BC. And and it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Moses wasn't there when the cosmos were created. Cosmos, not cosmos is, cosmos was created. He wasn't there, but God allowed Moses to write down what happened. So first of all, why were the words, Bereshit, Elohim, Barah, why were these words so controversial to those that would have first read it? Well, let me give you a few reasons. Number one, and these are kind of interesting. I have to take you out of your 2020 place and and set you back into 1500 BC for you to see why these words would have been so controversial uh, in their original context. First of all, these words declare a beginning to creation. They declare a beginning to creation. Now, you might think that, that that's not that strange because today most secular scientists even believe that the cosmos had a beginning. That's become accepted largely. But in that day, it was an entirely new and unthought of idea that the, that the cosmos, that the universe had a beginning. Genesis was the first to declare this. You see, the, the, the common thinking of the day um, when this would have been written was eternalism meaning that the universe had just always been. It's just always been here. And you can imagine why you would think that, right? If, if you just woke up one day and you all of a sudden became a human, you'd think, well, this has just probably always been here. 
Okay, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say creation's always been here. Uh, in fact, it says that it came into existence in time and space and matter came into existence at a particular time. And how interesting is it that modern science is now affirming that? You may agree or disagree with the Big Bang Theory, but the beautiful thing about it is they realize, wow, everything started. Everything started, everything had a beginning. And we see that now. These, uh, they believed, what the ancients believed was that the existence or that creation had always been and that the gods, the plural gods, they took what was already in existence and created out of that. Do you see the difference? They took what was already in existence and created out of that. We'll get more into that. Um, the problem with that idea is that if you think that God created all of the universe out of something that already existed, then you have two problems. The first one is that he's not sovereign over it because he took something that he didn't make and he doesn't have complete control of and he crafted out of it. But that's not what the Bible says. God created out of what? Nothing. Ex nihilo. Okay, we'll talk about that. Creation, if God created out of himself, if God created out of himself, then you get dualism. And what I mean by that is if God created, um, pardon me, I'm, I'm messing it up here. Uh, creation, if created by himself or out of himself, then that means that God is inherently evil because we see evil in the creation. So God didn't create out of himself. He didn't create out of, create out of existent matter. He created out of nothing. And therefore, God is sovereign over his creation because he didn't need or use anything to create it. Okay, I'm trying to stay out of the weeds here. Another reason that this was interesting and, and, and kind of controversial for its original audience is that these words declare a linear timeline, linear meaning a line. The ancients didn't think of time as being linear. They thought of it as being cyclical. And you can imagine why, right? We look at the seasons, we see everything has a season, the sun comes up, the sun goes down. Thus, um, you know, the, the world must be cyclical. The Bible was the first one to come along and say, no, it's actually linear. It has a beginning and it will have uh, an end or at least a recreation. Thirdly, the Bible um, in this, these first three Hebrew words um, declared a singular God. Now you might read that and go, yeah, sure. You know, the idea of there being one God, that's pretty common. That's because you grew up in a world where monotheism, one God, is the most normal religion in the world between Islam and Christianity. But there was no monotheism before the Hebrews brought it in to the, to the world. There was no monotheism. There was what was called pantheism, which is that there are multiple gods and that everything is sort of part of God and God is in everything and everything is in God and it's pantheism and polytheism, multiple gods. It's what the Greeks believed. It's what the Egyptians believed. This is what, the, this is the world that Moses would have wrote Genesis into. Now, why am I bringing all this up, okay? The reason I'm bringing all this up is because some people just think, well, you know, why could we believe the Bible? The Bible's just copying other religions. You think so? There was nothing like this when Genesis was written. Monotheism was not an idea. Linear time was not an idea. Having a beginning to the universe was not an idea. These were all probably laughable, countercultural, seemingly uneducated assertions that the Bible makes. But it, but it makes them nonetheless. Now, not much has changed because here we are in 2020, and if I read these words, in the beginning God created, I'm also going to find people that will laugh at me. I'm also going to find people that will be that's so uneducated, that's so unculturally relevant, so unprogressive, but for very different reasons, okay? And modern scientists have no problem, you know, they have no problem believing that the universe had a beginning, um, and they have no problem with monotheism being a religion because that's, like I said, the most common religion. But here's what modern people have a problem with when I read these first few words. First of all, 
these words present a supernatural origin for the universe, a supernatural origin. That is controversial. That is not likable in our culture. To say that the universe came into existence through supernatural means, I'll tell you what is popular is to say the universe came into existence through what? Natural means. Natural means. For some reason, that is way more easy to believe and to teach in our schools today um, and in our culture to say that all of this happened through a natural means than it is through a supernatural means, even though if you look around, this is a pretty supernatural universe, right? So naturalism is what most people are adopting for the birth of the cosmos at this point. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible simply presupposes the existence of a creator through a supernatural origin. Now these four words here, these three words, pardon me, mean bending the knee of scientific theory to the preeminence of God's word. It means that science bends its knee to God's word, and people don't like that. Now that doesn't mean the Bible's unscientific. It doesn't mean that the Bible isn't, um, isn't appreciate or actually value science. It does mean two things. It means that's the superiority of God's word over man's theories. Did you know evolution is still a theory? Okay, evolution, uh, microevolution is not a theory, but evolution as, as the explanation for humanity and all the things that we see around us is a theory. And so Christians would say, actually, we believe God's word has more authority than the theories of men. Christians would also say God has authority to override his natural created order. So if God says that he spoke and it obeyed, if God says that he created a global flood, well, that doesn't make sense scientifically. Okay, but if the creator of the cosmos wants to do that in his cosmos that he created, can he do it? Yes. And of course, you're presupposing the idea that God exists, but if God made the universe and he made it the way he wanted to, then he can override those natural laws. So the Christian opens up Genesis and he goes, I have no problem with this. I have no problem with this because I believe that God is the creator of the cosmos. And I personally believe that's more believable than believing it was just a giant accident. Let me ask you a question. What, and this is, this is a good question to ask people that might argue this with you. What's more likely? What's more likely? That stuff created a mind or that mind created stuff? What do you think? What's more likely? Okay. Naturalism says stuff created a mind. That's you, by the way. Creationism says a mind, God, created stuff and a mind. That's what creationism says. So these first three words aren't popular because they force the reader to ask the question whether or not there was a supernatural origin for the universe. Also, these words assert human accountability to a cosmic ruler. Uh, this is the main reason Genesis 1 is a hang-up for people when they open it and read it. Because listen, if God made you, then God owns you. We don't like to be owned. <laughs> if God made you and is sustaining you, then you answer to him for what you do with the life that he gave you because it's his life. That's the main, I'll be honest, I think the main hang-up for creationism is not the supernatural piece. It's the fact that people don't want to admit that they answer to God. Because if they answer to God, then they got to read the rest of the book and figure out what he's asking them to do. And if you don't believe in a good and gracious and loving God who sent his only son into the world to die for you, that's terrifying. Some angry cosmic deity up in the world who's just ready to smack you upside the head. I'd rather not read Genesis 1-1, thank you. I'll believe in backs of crystals or primordial soup. That sounds way more inviting. 
and then I can do whatever I want. That makes me the God of my own life, right? Rather than God being the God of my life. Third reason that current people don't like these words is it leaves room for the accusation of God's unfairness. Anyone who hasn't thought about that, hasn't thought very hard about it, here's the question, are you ready? It's gonna come at you. God created everything. He created the, the, the world the way he wanted it, but in it, it had this intrinsic flaw, sin, death, available to man. Isn't that make God bad? Doesn't that make God evil? If he created a universe that he knew was gonna fall, doesn't that make him an evil God? That's, that's a question you better be ready to answer, <laughs> okay? Uh, and, that's, and that's a big reason people can't get on board with Genesis 1-1. They go, well, I can't believe in a God that would allow all this. But what's so funny about that statement is that's such a Western, self-centered, Disney culture thing to say. Because I don't think God's fair, I'm not gonna believe in him. Oh, so do you believe in gravity? Do you think gravity's fair? No, it's not fair. Okay, go jump off the building and tell me whether gravity is real. It doesn't matter whether you think it's fair. It matters whether it's real. And only a Western mindset would say, I can get rid of God just simply by believing he's unfair. And the reality is God is not accountable to our fallen uh, notions of unfairness. Who told you what fairness was in the first place? God. Oh, wait, so you're trying to hold him accountable for the very thing you wouldn't even know existed if he didn't tell you? Well, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not saying we don't answer the question, but I am saying God doesn't seem very worried about answering your question, and he doesn't seem to feel like he has the need to. It doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't hint at it, and we're gonna get into this a little bit more. So those are some reasons why Genesis 1-1 was um, infinitely profound and proprietary and new and controversial, both in its original audience and in our current audience. But I wanna talk about the most important thing that is in Genesis 1-1. The most important truth in these three Hebrew words, and this is, this is just follow me on this, okay? I'm gonna try to create some logical steps because if you can get this, if you can understand what Genesis 1-1 is saying and implying and what it means for your life, it will change everything that you do, everything that you think, everything, everything about you will change if you can get what I'm trying to tell you this morning, okay? What Genesis 1-1 is trying to tell you. And the way that we're going to extract this point from Genesis 1-1 is asking the big question. Are you ready? What's the big question? Here it is. Why did God, a pre-existent, all-powerful, sovereign, omniscient God, choose to create time, space, and matter and then populate it with his image reflecting life, especially knowing that it would fall into sin and evil? Why would God create it? Okay, so you have, in the beginning, God Leave the created part off for a minute. In the beginning, God. What an amazing statement. That means that before everything was ever created, God was there. And then he created. You have to ask the question. If you're, if you're thinking logically, you have to ask the question, why did he create? Why did he create? What was his purpose? Was he lonely? Was God lonely? He's like, man, I just feel, I'm so bored up here in, in divinity land. Like, I'm just going to create some, some humans that can just screw things up and mess up my universe like little kids and have to clean up all their junk all the time. Was that, was that what he did? I don't think so. Was he bored? Was he, is he a cosmic narcissist? Was God up there looking in the mirror, you know, like checking out his tries and thinking, man, I am just a beautiful God. I should create people to come and see how beautiful I am because that would just really make me look good. I don't think so. 
Does he draw power from worship, like Santa Claus? Have you ever noticed that, by the way? Like every movie, Santa Claus's sleigh only flies if people believe in him. You know how much of that has leaked into Christianity? Like faith accesses power in this weird way, like, like Santa's sleigh will only fly if I give it the belief? No. It's not that God needed humanity to somehow fill the meter of faith so that he could come and do cosmic things. So why? Why did he create? All of those things, are, as I just said, are clearly refuted in scripture. So what is the answer? Well, here's my thesis, and then I'll defend it, okay? My thesis is that God's preeminent purpose in creation was love. Okay, it was love. And we have to define love because love has been hijacked by progressivism. It says love is whatever makes me feel good. It's not true. Okay, but God's preeminent purpose in creation was love. And I'm gonna make this point in three logical steps. Are you ready? Write them down. This is how you, this is how you do apologetics. You make three logical steps, and those steps are supposed to lead to an irrefutable point. Here's my three logical steps, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, God has no need. Would you agree? Good. God has no need. Number two, God has only to give. Why? Because he has no need. If God has no need, then he can only give. He doesn't need anything. So therefore, God's purpose in creation was love. Now let me walk you through that, that argument here. Okay, number one, God has no need. A.W. Tozer said, need is a creature word. You understand everything around you, everything in, in this room, the organs in your body, they all have need. If this room is not kept up and cleaned, and, and, and it will decay. If your body is not fed with nutrients, what will happen? You'll, you'll die. If the earth is not sustained, by who we know is the sustainer, it will end. Everything in the created universe has need. But God, my friends, is not in the created universe. He works in the created universe, but he lives and exists outside of the created universe. Therefore, he has no need. The reason we know this is because the Bible makes clear that he created everything out of nothing. That's a very important statement. It sounds like a contradiction, but that's only because you're thinking within your own limited, finite mind. It's not a contradiction. God created everything out of nothing. Theologians call this creato ex nihilo. That's created out of nothing. Super important, super important. If you believe in creation, there's only three options. Option one, I already talked about this a little bit. Option one, God created everything out of himself, and that you get pantheism. That's like what the Hindus believe. Um, Buddhism believes that God is creation, and creation is God. We certainly don't believe that. If you believe God created the universe out of something that already existed, then you get dualism. We already talked about this. But theism says God created everything out of nothing. Now, here's a perfect example of this. It's from the Bible, so you know it's good. When Moses interacts with Yahweh God, which, by the way, before that, um, Elohim is the primary word used to describe God. It's not until that moment where Moses comes face to face with Yahweh that God gives him his covenant name, his special name. That means what? I am that I am. In other words, there's no created thing that can describe me or explain me. It's in that moment where Moses stands before Yahweh that Yahweh tells him who he is. But what is the picture that's, that's typifying Yahweh in that moment? What is it? It's a burning bush. You think it really? A burning bush? There's some symbolism behind that. It says specifically that there was a bush burning yet not consumed. Why does that matter? 
because every created thing has need. Every created thing consumes. What happens when you light something on fire? The fire uses the resources that it takes from the wood, the oxygen, whatever it is, and it uses it up until it goes out. This bush is burning, yet it takes, it takes nothing from creation. It has no need, it's self-sustaining. It has life within and of itself. It's no mistake that that was the picture that God chose to reveal himself first to Moses. I am the self-sustaining one. I don't need anything. He has been eternally sustained out of his own power forever. He didn't make creation because he needed creation and he certainly doesn't lean on creation in any way. Creation leans on him. All he would have to do is let go and creation would cease. Time and space and matter would cease. We know this from Colossians, actually talking about Jesus here in Colossians 1.15. It says, Jesus, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, that is not talking about Christ being created, by the way, and we could talk about that later. For by him all things were created. In case that's not clear, in heaven on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, all rulers and authority, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. So Christ in the Father, in the Spirit, the triune God existed before everything was created. Nothing was created other than what was created through him. He created it ex nihilo, out of nothing. And therefore, listen, this is important, therefore nothing is beholden. He is the only one that has the power. He is the only one that has the sovereign. Why is this so important, Sam? Why are you stressing this? Well, because the ancients believed in an eternalistic universe. They thought that the gods just took things that already existed and they made out of it. The problem with that is if, if you take something that already existed and you just reshape it, you're not sovereign over it. God created out of nothing, therefore no, he doesn't answer to anyone. He has complete sovereignty, complete power over everything he created. He only answers to his own nature. He's not leaning on creation. And listen, God could entirely eliminate his creation and lose nothing. He is self-sufficient, self-sustained, self delighting, beholding to no one and nothing but his own consistent and righteous attributes. Isn't that amazing? It's the God that we serve. So he needs nothing. So he didn't create because he needed, okay? And by the way, we need to acknowledge that creating something out of nothing sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Because the Bible isn't claiming that nothing came from nothing. Nothing came from something and that something was God. From the mind of God and the authority of God to create out of nothing. Okay, are you confused? Are you with me? Are you guys here? I know this is like the same as this is like a science thing or what? Okay, praise the Lord. This stuff, this stuff matters, okay? Big thoughts, big God, okay? If you wanna think about a big God, you gotta think big thoughts. Okay, cool. If you want Twitter sermons, I, we can do that, you know. Listen, God, not only does God not need because he created ex nihilo, but God doesn't have need because he is relationally and eternally satisfied with himself. You know, um, everybody knows Christians say God is love. But if God is only one, who was he loving? How can God be love if there wasn't anyone to love until creation? Was God only love once he created things? Or was God love before he created things? He was love before he created things. He is love. How can he, how can someone be love? What does that mean? How can you be love? I mean, you can love, but how do you be love? Well, God is love. Why? Because he is Trinitarian. Because he is three in one. Because forever in existence, God has existed as a loving unit. 
The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Spirit loves the Son. It's, it's C.S. Lewis called it the great dance. God has been existing as a lover for all of eternity. He didn't need affirmation. He didn't need praise. He didn't need relationship. He wasn't lonely or bored. He was perfectly satisfied in eternity within the Godhead. You're saying, Sam, where are you getting this? Okay, John chapter 17, verse four. Jesus is praying to the Father. He says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence. Listen, listen with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is saying, the cross is going to consummate what has existed before all eternity. It's not that love started at the cross. Love didn't start with creation. Love preexisted creation. The implication is that, listen, this is controversial. God is for God. You know, God, God revolves around me. God exists for me. No, he doesn't. I'm sorry. I hate to break it to you. I know that crushes your little Western self-loving brain. He doesn't exist for you. He doesn't even exist for the church. He doesn't exist for the world. God so loved the world, but God did not so exist for the world. God exists for God. He is for God ultimately. We have a hard time getting our head around that, but it's still true. You are a beneficiary of God's eternal love. You are not the object of it. It existed before you, and it would exist without you. True love, now listen, this is really important. True love is only loving it if it is, if it is not self-serving. Would you agree? True love is only loving if it is not self-serving. God's love is the only true, altruistic love because he's the only one that truly has no need or gain. You can't gain anything. So when I love my wife, I would say it's pretty loving. When I love my kids, I'd say it's pretty loving, but is it altruistic? No, it's not. Because I'm receiving something back for that because I'm a creature of need. I have a need for affirmation. I have a need for love and affection. I have a need to be in community. And so I love my wife. And I wish I could say it was altruistic, but in many ways, she is a blessing to me. Her love and affection fills me up. Same with my kids. So it's not really truly an altruistic love. The only way I could love my wife altruistically was if I didn't need anything from her, and that's not true. Only God can love altruistically because only God doesn't need anything. So why does he love us then? It's hard for us to get our heads around these things because these are out of our dimension. We live in the natural world. He lives outside of the natural world. If God doesn't need creation and God has fully satisfied himself in himself, then that still doesn't answer the question of why he created, right? So here's my second proposition. If God has no needs, then he only has to give. If he has no needs, he only has to give. Here's the problem. When we try to answer the question of why God created, we think way too small. In fact, we think way smaller than the Bible does. Let me show you a quote by John Piper somewhere. When we ask about God's design, we are too prone to describe it with ourselves at the center of God's affection. We may say, for example, that his design is to redeem the world or to save sinners or to restore creation or the like. But God's saving designs are penultimate. That means um, those things are secondary. These he performs for the sake of something greater, namely the enjoyment he has in glorifying himself. 
What Piper is getting at here is he's saying, you know, if someone were to walk up to you and ask you, what is God's purpose in the universe? You would probably say something true like redemption or to, to, to purchase a bride for Christ or to establish the church or to recreate the world. And those are all true things, but those are short of God's ultimate purpose in creation. And anything short of God's ultimate purpose in creation will not give you the real answer to your origin and your meaning and your purpose that you need. God didn't create just to redeem. God didn't create just to make a church. God created for himself. You're saying, isn't that narcissistic? Isn't that egotistical? Isn't God, isn't that basically saying that God's ego, he created just to worship himself? Think with me, think with me for a minute, okay? What makes something prideful? What makes something egotistical? If I stand up here and I say, you know, guys, I'm, I'm the best preacher in the whole world, why is that pride? Because I'm not. It's, it's pride because, it, because it's not true. It's self-inflated. That's what pride is. Narcissism is, is, uh, is born out of a sense of need. I need something from you. Is God prideful? Not in a sinful sense. What, what, if, what if you were the single greatest source of power, joy, glory, and beauty in the entirety of the cosmos? What if there's nothing better than you, nothing bigger than you? Worshiping anything other than yourself would actually be wrong. Are you with me? Do you realize if God gave you anything short of himself, he's less than loving? If God created you so you can have your best life now, so you can have everything you want in this life, and that's the sole purpose of your existence, you know that would be child abuse? True love is God giving you the best thing, the best thing for you, and you know what the best thing for you is? Himself. Not the things he created, the creator. That's why idolatry is such a big deal. Worshiping the things God created instead of the one who created them. It's a big deal. C.S. Lewis profoundly said, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. He said, I thought of it in terms of compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising countryside, players praising their favorite game. Have you ever noticed that, by the way, that when you go and you eat at a really good restaurant, what's the first thing you wanna do? You wanna go tell somebody. That's praise. It's finding value and then it's declaring it. And listen to what C.S. Lewis says, this is so cool. I think we delight to Delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. So the most joy that you find out of something isn't anticipating it and it's not actually doing it. It is the praise of sharing it. So what, what happens? God is this eternally existent being who has no need, he has eternal love, and he creates a creation to share in that love, not because he needs anything, but because he has everything to give. And he finds pleasure in giving it because it's in the enjoyment and the sharing of the enjoyment that he finds its appointed consummation. Are you following me? Isn't that cool? God created to love. He created to share himself. John Piper says it better than me because this is a lot of his thinking. In creation, God went public. I love that. 
In creation, God went public with the glory that reverberates joyfully between the Father and the Son. This is key. There is something about the fullness of God's joy that inclines it to overflow. There is an expansive quality to his joy. It wants to share itself. The impulse to create the world was not from weakness, as though God were lacking in some perfection that creation could supply. It is no argument of the emptiness or deficiency of a fountain that it is inclined to overflow. That's Jonathan Edwards' words. God loves to behold his glory reflected in his works. So the eternal happiness of the triune God spilled over in the works of creation and redemption. This is why God has done all things, from creation to consummation, that is Revelation, the end times, for the preservation and display of his glory, all his works are simply, to the, are simply the spillover of his infinite exuberance for his own excellence. Okay, that's a lot of big words. Do you understand what he's saying here? God's love is so eternal that it, it demands that it be spilled over. So God created a vessel to spill that love over. The vessel is his creation. He created it that his love might be enjoyed, the love that he has experienced in all of eternity, the satisfaction and the joy and the pleasure that he has found within the Trinitarian Godhead. He is sharing that eternally with all of creation. Is that a little bit more exciting than Jesus died for you so you could have a great life? No? Is that, is that a little more exciting than that? Is that a little bit more exciting than, hey, pray this prayer so you don't have to go to hell? Cool. Take a deep breath. You're not in control. He's the creator, ex nihilo. He made it out of nothing. He's sovereign over it. He will redeem it. Secondly, let me just end here. Lastly, what it means to see God as a God of love that created for the purpose of love means not demonizing your desire to be happy, but instead redirecting it towards God. This is where John Piper's been so helpful, and I would recommend his book, Desiring God, because he unpacks this really clearly. But he, he, he says this particular line, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he argues the fact that we've been told in religion that fun is evil and joy is not to be sought. And anything that you do that you enjoy is probably wrong. <laughs> you ever feel that way? You ever feel guilty for enjoying things? That, that's actually, you've believed a lie. God's desire is not for you to not seek joy. His desire is to, for you to seek ultimate joy, the only thing that can actually satisfy you. And like a loving father, he, he graciously and patiently takes our hand off of the thing that we think is gonna satisfy us, and he redirects it to the thing that ultimately will. That's what the Christian life is. It's called growing up. We should be obsessed with joy, but not hedonistic joy, which is for the purpose of fulfilling myself, but Christian joy, which is the purpose of fulfilling God and his purposes and being on board with that. It's not that, our, it's not that we shouldn't have affections. It's that we set our affections too low. We set our affections too low. Our affections need to be taken higher. I want to be happy, so I'm going to go straight to the Lord because he will fulfill me. That's what we need to do. Created. If you can get those words, if you can believe those words, that in the beginning God created for himself and for you. You're not the center of the universe. He is the center. Let's orbit around him, amen?